everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome to Before the Lights podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Joining me today, we have a 6'3", 350-pound defensive tackle and defensive end in the NFL for 14 seasons. He played with the Ravens, Raiders, Bills, Bengals, Seahawks, and the Broncos. A five-time AFC Pro Bowler who starred in three games. A two-time All-Pro, All-American at Texas A&M. He's known as the Man Mountain and the owner of the Indoor Football League, Spokane Shock. Born in Houston, Texas, please welcome to the show, Sam Adams. Sam, how are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing today, Tommy? Doing well. I want to give a shout out to Javier De La Rosa for connecting us. Hav's a good friend, and I hope he's doing well up there with you guys. That's what's up, man. I appreciate it. Your father, Sam Adams Sr., played for the New England Patriots from 72 to 80 and the New Orleans Saints in 81. You have a big family lineage in the sport of football. So how tell my listeners, how did you get into football? Well, I, I mean, I got into football from, like you said, my father. I mean, you know, he... Uh, I love the game. I, I followed him around and I couldn't wait till it was my turn to be able to play. And so when I had that opportunity, you know, and growing up in New England, it's kind of funny because when you're in New England, your first sport is going to be hockey. I mean, that's, that's just it. In a, that's just it in a nutshell. You play football when it gets cold, you play hockey. And so I started with the hockey team and, when I got old enough uh, where he was comfortable with me going out and banging around, he let me play football. And so we were able to do that. And I was, I was excited about it, man. It, it's, I always wanted to do it. Hockey was cool. I learned how to skate, you know, they pushed me around on the ice for a little bit. And uh, I just couldn't wait to get on the football field, watching them play every Sunday and going to practices and training camp is what I wanted to do. Were you able then as a youngster to get on the sidelines and, and watch your dad play? Training camp. Training camp. Uh, we did. Yeah, they don't, they didn't, back then they didn't do that. It was more so of, you know, you sit, sit your butt in the stands and watch. Gotcha. Have you always been then a student of the game as well? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's how I learned how to do it. I used to have these electric football men and I used to carry around my playbook and, and uh, strategize and learn how to do it. And, and when I got serious about the game, he brought me home and he said, you know, go, go see your coach and ask him for a, a, a video, a film. And so back in the day, they had this huge box that you put these reel to reels on and he had a, uh, he had the screen, he had the reel to reel, and he had me bring home the film for the reel to reel. Coach gave me the film. He taught me how to splice it. He taught me how to watch it, break it down, and that's how that's how it's always been done for me. Because I had this as a youngster myself, the game where you flipped on the switch and the guy started shaking on the on the yeah yeah that's the, electric football yeah. that's what I was talking about yeah yeah that's electric football and I, I had a playbook for that okay. All right. I remember that game. Yeah. I, I made a playbook for it. And I watched, I remember watching uh, the Super Bowl when Doug Williams was the MVP and, and uh, they came out running this, I guess it was called 38 cross 
from my high school. And I remember setting up the men so they would pull like the two guys and and uh, I remember talking to my coach about it and he was like, yeah, man, that's 38 cross and you got to do this, you got to do that. And we run that play and that's why we run it. And I was like, yeah, when I get home, I'm going to run that joker on my electric football <laughs> game. Your son, Sam, as well, is in the game, attends Washington University, attended Eastside Catholic. He was a four-star recruit. What type of player is your son? Uh, little Sam is, you know, he's extremely talented. Um, I taught him like my dad taught me. And he sits down, he studies, you know, I don't know if he does it as much now that he's at the U. Um, it's way different now because the funny thing is, back then you had to use a reel to reel and cut it up and splice it. Now, I can remember, you know, going off on little Sam, um, you know, because I hadn't seen him in a while. You know, are you ready for your game? Are you doing this? You doing that? Yeah, I seen you studying. They can watch their film from their phone. Yeah. And and so, you know, they have this new huddle system and yep. this VizWap and all these systems out there. And so, you know, I'm wondering if Joker's always on his phone while he's watching game film that it would take us, you know, hours and hours. He can pop up any game that he wants study and watch. And so, you know, he, I taught him how to break it down. He knows how to break people down. His thing was he had to play both offense and defense. So he understands the game very well. He has a, a very high football IQ. Um, and he, you know, he enjoys playing both sides of the ball. And, you know, that's my, that's my youngest. Uh, my oldest was at Utah state is the same way, you know, and he would, he graduated from ASU played for the sun devils and, uh, uh, he's getting his master's at Utah State. He's got another year of eligibility. And he used to send me his practice film. So all of them are students of the game. They understand, you know, hey, if you don't study, you don't prepare properly, you will never be any good at it. On the heels of that then, how does somebody who's listening, and they may look at this totally different coming from somebody who played in the NFL, but how does somebody become a reliable teammate? Reliable teammates, somebody that does their job. They don't lose individually because, you know, everybody claims this to be a team sport. It's an individual sport that everyone collectively has to be on the same page with. And so if you individually win your individual battles and every play, we have 11 battles that we collectively win because you can't win always by yourself. You know, the guy next to me has to have his gap. I have my gap. I do my job. He does his job and you win. Um, a reliable teammate is someone that you know is going to do their job, plain and simple. You know, I never got into, you know, I like my teammates. They were cool and, and so forth. And you develop friendships and with, with, with guys and the camaraderie and so forth. Um, but I was reliable. I did my job. They're not running through my gap. They're not running. That You know, I'm not the one that they're going to make a living off of coming through. In fact, they barely ran on my side. So, in my opinion, a reliable teammate is somebody that does their job. You attended Cypress Creek High School. You were the prep Southwest Defensive Player of the Year. What I want to talk about is you were the state champion in the shot put, and you play second in the nation among all high school and track and field athletes. When did track and coming into that become part of, uh, in addition to football? Um, in the seventh grade, 
it's so it's funny in Texas. You, if you're not playing baseball, you run a track. Period. All football players run track, and baseball is the only sport that's playing at the same time as track. And if you are not playing baseball, you are going to run track. <laughs> and so, I wasn't trying to run. I was. I, I, I wasn't feeling that. But I did have to do all the training that everybody else did, and the entire track team had a program. And then you went to your individual events. So they stuck me with the shot and disc. And so I, you know, I was I, I wasn't very good at it. At the beginning, I learned. I taught myself. Got to high school, fell in love with the sport. It's my. It's, it became my favorite sport. And I, and, you know, I won district, and I ended up winning state and national titles. And I was excited. And, and then come to find out, some of the best. Well, first of all, all the greats that come out of Texas, all the great football players, they all run track. And so um, Michael Carter was at Dallas Carter, I believe. Mm-hmm. He actually has a state record and then the national record, um, which is at 82 feet. Nobody will ever break that. I was trying my best. And I didn't even break his state record, which was 75 feet. So, I mean, he was a hoss. And so only reason why I was second place, that joker, I never got a chance to play – um, to go to the junior nationals in Texas that we just didn't, my, our, my school didn't participate in that. And and so I didn't have a chance to compete against that kid. He beat me from, you know, like across the country, but if I was face to face, I'd have definitely knocked that out. You know, competition one on one is totally different than, you know, me going against myself, basically. Agree. How did shot and disc then help you for football? Man, the, the, the training for shot put in discus is all explosive power. And I probably became, I mean, my first step was one thing everybody talked about my first step, but it really wasn't my first step. It was the explosiveness coming from my stance out and, and being able to have the great footwork. So um, the shot put is all explosion, the power lifting, the, I mean, my, that entire day of training is about explosion. And that's where I got my explosive power was from playing the shot put in the balance uh, and the grace of throwing the discus. Going back to your football high school recruitment to college, I'm assuming back in the day you had coaches calling, knocking on your door, showing up at the house. Was it a little crazy for you? Yeah, I mean, it was different. I mean, back then, you know, it was, I remember the show, uh, this movie we watched called John, I think it was Johnny Be Good. Well, you know, you had people popping up everywhere from hiding in the bushes. And I mean, <laughs> it's hilarious. I, I did have a lot of that. I, I remember having some days where they would just show up at school. And Lil Sam went through a little bit of that and some of his teammates. Um, so my fifth, so lunch was fourth period. I'll take it back. In Texas, you go to, football practice at fourth period. So if you play a sport, you have that sport as a class during the day, and then you come out and practice after. So you're really in two a days. So I remember um, going to football at, in fourth period, the Alina scouts there. I would start then, I would miss lunch, and then my fifth period I had was government, which was taught by one of the football coaches. And during the recruitment, I never got to that class on time or even at all. 
And, and so I would have to spend my extra time doing working on that class because it was a ton of, you know, I mean, it was a ton of scouts there from four. They were there for about, you know, three hours because you couldn't see you after school. And so I had to do it then. And I, I remember that it was just, it was crazy. And they made me talk to everyone who oh, wanted wow. to come to the school. And so, you know, I, I can remember, you know, a, a, a coach, the coach's name was Coach Cooper. He was at the University of Rice and uh, he had been one of our coaches. He had coached me. He helped raise me, you know, at, at uh, Cypress Creek. And I'll never forget it. You know, the coach came and said, hey, man, um, Coach Cooper's here to see you. And I was like, Coach, man, I hadn't eaten lunch in like two weeks. <laughs> I, I, I'm i probably not going to go to Rice. I mean, uh, it's a great school, but I'm probably not going to go to Rice. He's like, well, I, I don't care. He came. You're going to give him the respect. You're going to talk to him. So I learned a lot from that entire process. And I, I literally missed lunch and prior to first prior to fifth period, you know, talking to the, you know, the former coach that was at Rice and, you know, listen to him, tell me about Rice. And, and, uh, and I learned, you know, you have to treat people a certain way. And, you know, if someone has something to say, you may, you may already know how you feel about it, but you give them the respect because you may also learn something that might be able to help you somewhere else. And so during that process, you know, he kind of helped me with, you know, finding out what I really wanted, even though I, I knew I didn't want to, you know, go to Rice. Who is the final two then? Texas A&M, where you end up choosing, and who is the last, the other choice? Uh, Texas. Texas. Four. It was S. It was USC, Miami, Oklahoma. I was going. You know, in fact, I was going to Oklahoma. Okay. I, I was going to go to Oklahoma. It was. Done, I mean, I had a blast on the on the trip and I finally thought to myself, you know, if I go to Oklahoma, I probably won't get a degree going to Oklahoma. I, I, it, it's too much. It, it's, there's too many distractions here. It, it's just, it was just too much for me. So I, I boiled it down to Texas and A&M. I was actually going to go to Texas and I didn't have a very good visit. I went to A&M on a bye week, not a bye week, but, um, Spring break. Nobody was on campus. It was just the players. And I, I went to Texas A&M because of Greg Hill, um, who, who was, you know, my mentor there. Um, Eric England, Lance Teichelman, you know, a few of the guys that I met. And Wilbur Biggins. Those are the guys that, you know, kind of I wanted to be around and I wanted to go to school with. How was your transition from high school to college, Ooh, it, you know what? <laughs> yeah, I, I can. I, I remember that like it was yesterday. In fact, the first so the night before I was supposed to go to college, um, my friends and I, Mark Daniels, I, I'll never forget this. We were out clowning around and racing in the street, and I actually fell and scarred up my hands and my knees, and I came home. And my, my mom, my mother might still be mad at me about that. <laughs> and my dad was even hotter. I, I didn't even want to tell him. And, you know, I, I can remember Mark came in with me and I was like, man, you, you're going to have to come in here with me because they're going to be hot. And they're going to think I was fighting and you know, I was bleeding everywhere. And 
I came in and, and, you know, he just held his head down and I, I, I held mine down and they, you know, she glared at me and my dad was in the back room pacing, wouldn't even talk to me. And so it was rough. And so when I got to school the next day, you know, they, they looked at it and they, they kind of laughed and they were like, doesn't matter. You got to go to work. And, you know, as a, as a freshman, you know, I, I kind of had, had my way with all the freshmen and it wasn't really that big of a deal. But when all the older cats got there, they were long, they were big. They were like, I was 265 probably when I got to college. Those jokers are like 320 and 6'7 and 6'5 and those knuckle dragging arms. I mean, I can remember watching this guy kneel down and he can touch his toes, barely bending over. And I was like, man, what what have I gotten myself into? So, you know, it, it was the, the size of the guys, the length of the guys, and then their athletic ability. Everybody was – they weren't as athletic as me, but they were way, way more athletic, and it was faster. And everybody was closer to me. Uh, and, in fact, some of them probably were a little bit ahead at that time. And so my first week was tough and it kind of threw me out to the wolves. I wasn't starting, but I was, I was getting more time than most of the other freshmen. And when it came time to rock and roll, I was struggling. And so I had a guy, I'll never forget this. You know, we were going one-on-one. He threw me down. I stopped. The coach blew the whistle. I stopped. He threw me down on the ground and I was so hot. And my cousin, Patrick Henry, was uh, a defensive lineman playing at that time. And so when we watched film the next day, you know, for a second, the guys kind of laughed and then it got really quiet. And my cousin stood up and said, hey, Sam, you know, we don't play like that here. If you ever, you know, embarrass the defensive line like that again, you'll you'll never be accepted and respected in this room. And, you know, Eric England and Lance Teichelman, you know, said the same thing. And then the D-line coach, I'll never forget this. <clears throat> um, you know, it was called Big Bull. Um you know, Greg taught, taught me a lot. And he, you know, basically he told me, he said, you know, if you want to be respected, then you're going to have to earn that respect in this room and on that field. So I went, I remember going home and I prayed to God that, if, you know, he, you know, I thought I was going to be a, I want to go to the NFL like my father. And I thought it was going to be a different road. And so I had to commit myself. I prayed to God, if he let me go and do what I need to do, I will do everything in my power to get it done. And from that day on, um, I never looked back. I was starting probably in two, three weeks from there. And, I never gave the job back and I've never looked back since. And I'm going to read off some of your accolades. You also did shot and disc as well at A&M. I did. Did you have a hard time juggling both in at the collegiate level? No, I didn't have a hard time (laughs) juggling at the collegiate level because of when football coach RC Slocum was said exactly this. You are here to play football you're done playing. You're done throwing shot put. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. You stood in my living room and told my parents that I can throw the shot at, at Texas A&M and discus. He said, let me tell you something. We'll shut the track program down if I catch you back out there. It's <laughs> track, track practice. So I went to the track coach. And the track coach was like, hey, you're not getting me fired, Sam. <laughs> hey, you heard what he said. And I was like, I'm not I'm not doing it. Uh, I'm not doing it. He lied to me. I got a phone call from my father that night. And dad was, he, my father was like, hey, 
RC Slocum called me. He said that because I, I was seeing track is way different in college. You leave on Wednesday. So my grades were suffering. I hadn't been gotten used to that. You, you, we left on Wednesday to go to track meets on Saturday and we would drive on the bus. So I wasn't used to riding on the bus. I was flying on, you know, for football, but we're driving and I was doing indoor shot and, and an outdoor season came and I literally, you know, was struggling to keep up with that. And so RC told me, so I tell you what, you can throw the shot as long as you don't miss another football workout and you do both your football workout and the track workout. And I was like, what are you kidding me? So I, I was, no, I was stubborn. I was pissed. I was like, forget <laughs> it. I'll do it. The football, first of all, the track workout is way more grueling than a football workout. You know, we do running and all that, but all the weights, the weights, from the weights and the explosive work is more grueling than the football workout. And it was all virtually the same length of time. So I would have to do the football workout with the football team and then start over and do my track workout by myself. And then the track coach, the throwing coach would come and throw with me and it was just hard. And I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. So my dad called and said, Hey, listen, you know, you have goals. You said you want to get to the NFL. Well, they, they're relying on you. They're paying for you. And so this is the last I want to hear about the track. He said, if I hear any more, I'll be up there tomorrow. <laughs> and I was like, yep, track is done. I'm, not done. <laughs> I'm done running track. In fact, he may, may have came up there. I, I'm not, I, I don't remember if he did. I know he was pissed. And my father was, when he starts talking low and calm and slow, you know that he's beyond his point and his limit. So I, I knew that I was done with track. I didn't want to have to fight my father. Yeah, you, so you had no problems, as you said, juggling those two. <laughs> I had no problem juggling those two after I got that phone call because, you know, I, I was being stubborn enough that I, where I was still going to miss football stuff. And, and I, I can remember um, they were pissed at me. We were just getting – we were getting our conference rings, and I was away at a track meet, and I'd missed some stuff, and and my grades were probably slipping because I hadn't I, – I was missing everything. You know, if, if, if most of your classes are, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then you have Tuesday, Thursday. Well, here I am missing stuff on Wednesday through Friday. And they were just, you know, the RC was like, this is this isn't going to cut it for me, buddy. And, and on top of that, he, you know, he expected me. I earned a starting position as a freshman, uh, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't the best that I could possibly be. And, and he, you know, he told me, you know, we're going to go where you take us on defense. This is, this, this is your defense. I, I, you know, we lost Quentin Coriat, who was the first pick in the draft. We probably lost three or four first round draft picks on the defense and he needed me to step up. And and so, you know, he needed me eligible. He needed me to step up and he needed me to do what I came there to do. And he was paying my bills. Like he told me, so you better get your big butt out there and not miss any more football. Throughout your career, you were the 1991 SWC Newcomer of the Year as a freshman, first-team All-American, first-team All-SWC in 1992. In 93, you led the team in tackles for a loss, sacks, forced fumbles, and fumble recoveries. You're a consensus first-team All-American, the SWC Defensive Player of the Year, and the runner-up to the Lombardi Award throughout your career. Sam, did you end up going to NFL Combines? And if you did, who was showing interest to you at the Combines? 
man, that's, that goes back to that high school thing. I did go to the combine. I didn't run. I did the agilities and so forth, but I talked to every team there, which I hated. Um, and like, like, like my high school coach taught me, it doesn't matter because I got the same speech from my agent, uh, Angelo Wright. He said, Hey, no matter what you talk to everybody. And so I, I can remember, I hated it, man. They, you know, you, these, these teams, it was kind of funny what they did. So I, a, I had to, I talked to everyone and some of these interviews that you would have, they would give you tests. Freaking who was that? I think it was Washington that gave you another like wonder leg test or something. It, it, I remember their, their test was like 300 questions of every, like every 10, 15 questions, they asked the same question, but in a different way. And it was 300 questions like that. And I hate it, but I did it. And, you know, I guess the purpose of it is to see if you take the entire thing serious. I did. And the reason why I did was because you never know in this business who you're going to come across again. So if I wouldn't have taken those tests and I wouldn't have talked to all those people later on, I played 14 years for six different teams later on in my career. I saw a lot of those people like for instance, and this, you know, they gave me great advice in high school. Uh, I was, uh, SC was one of the places I was going to go. Clarence Shellman recruited me from USC. Clarence Shellman got me drafted to the Seattle Seahawks because of how I acted uh, on our interviews, because of how I behaved, the respect that I gave him, you know, my mom used to not give me the phone calls when Clarence would call the house, but he stood on the table for me and he said, Hey, this is a good kid. We want this kid. He's a guy. And he got me drafted. And, you know, some of those guys that I did interviews with um, and, and on different teams, I ended up playing with. So it was a good thing that, you know, I had those conversations. I mean, I talked to New York Jets and Pete Carroll, um, who was all over me. Uh, about, you know, my, my work ethic and my playing and so forth. And uh, Bill Parcells got me in trouble. I, you know, I, my, Bill Parcells was the head coach of the New England Patriots. He came in late to the combine, so I had to stay late and I missed my flight. And the combine people were all pissed off about it. And Bill ended up wanting to draft me. And so I had a great relationship with him. Bill actually coached on the same staff with my father. Wow. And so it was good that I gave all these people their respect because, he you know, he was the fourth pick in the draft. And wanted, you know, he tried to negotiate a deal to draft me. I didn't really want to go and play for Bill because of my father, you know, being from New England and wanting to have my own footsteps. And it was obvious when I had that interview that he that he was going to put it, put the screws to me because he felt an obligation to my dad. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, we, we are not going there. <laughs> you were drafted eighth overall by the Seahawks. Who are some <clears> of <throat> your NFL mentors then coming into the league? Oh, my father was the number one. I mean, you know, he would call me and he would grill me on, you know, who am I playing against, you know, give me their attributes. My father, my uncle Aaron, uh, who's always been there, he would follow me to my games and go to games. And so my father and, and my uncle were the two biggest mentors. My pastor back at home was a big, huge mentor and part of why I did what I did. And the church used to pay for me to go to those national track meets and in the summer. And so, you know, those have always been my mentors. If you would speak regarding for my listeners, what a typical NFL practice day is like. Ooh, boy. 
they 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 just don't know. You know, <laughs> that's what I'm assuming. They they think that you you know the, you know you, I laugh at people because they are so ignorant when they say that football players are dumb because you can't be dumb and play football. You literally have a, a playbook that is the size of a telephone book, and it changes on a weekly basis. So we spend six weeks, well, the entire offseason, but really six weeks of going through your playbook, learning a playbook. And then when you get to the season, every single week, those plays change. Now, you don't use them all. I remember Dick LeBeau, when I was with in Cincinnati, I played, he coached a long time. He played uh, for the Bengals. He played for the Steelers. A coach for the Steelers forever. And he would literally put stuff in in training camp and we wouldn't use it or practice it and see it again until like week eight. And they expect you to remember that. And so I can remember being on the field and him calling in a play and I'm looking over in the stand and on the sideline saying, what, what the hell did you just call? <laughs> And, um, and everybody's like, hey, what? and we're having a scramble before, you know, the Steelers break out into the huddle and they come to the line. And literally, you have to remember those things. And so a, a day for the typical NFL, you start at, you know, seven, eight o'clock uh, with uh, special teams meetings. Um, those are not in special teams or lifting weights. Then we come together as a team and have our team meetings. Uh, then we break out from our team meetings into our um, side of the ball meetings, uh, offense and defense. Uh, and then from there, you break down into your individual position group meetings. So when we break down to your, you know, uh, defensive meeting, we'll go over the game plan. So the week breaks down into Mondays is a um, review day and then an introductory, introductory day on who we're playing. Tuesdays are off days, whereas you get a workout, you work on your body, and you come and pick up film that you start watching on the new team if you didn't pick it up on Monday. And then Wednesday, Thursday are your work days. You meet, you prepare the game, implement the game plan on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, some teams travel on Friday. Uh, some travel on Saturday. Um, Saturday is a hay in the barn day and then Sunday. Um, work days on Wednesday, Thursday, you're there from 8 till four or five o'clock, depending on the coach. So in Seattle, we had all those meetings. You have your offense defense meeting where you introduce the game plan, break down the first and down, first and, uh, first down, first and 10, play action passes, all different types of plays for the offense. Then you break down into your individual meetings and you go through that and game plan again, you go through the individual plays, the changes from last week to this week, and then you watch film on the section of the game that you're going to practice on, whether it be first and 10, whether it be, um, see, Monday, yeah, so first and 10 mostly is a physical day. So you got your first and 10, you got your, you know, second and seven, you know, the middle of the field type stuff. And then you break down into a nickel package, you break down into a blitz package, and we do all of that on Wednesday, Thursday. Friday, you come in on short yardage and goal line. You go over everything that you did during the week. And then it's a perfect day where there's no offsides. There's no fumbling. There's no anything bad. 
uh, plus you're implementing short yards and goal line. And then so, you know, it's probably not a padded day. Um, Wednesday, Thursdays are pads or half pads. And then Saturdays are mostly mock games where, you know, you go over your personnel groupings, you go over, you know, who's going in the game for what, if somebody gets injured, who's in for that person, um, that type of stuff. So, you know, you're putting the hay in the barn, making sure everybody's solid. And then you have your meeting that night and do the same thing to make sure that everybody's perfect. And so it's constant repetition uh, it's constant memory work, which is funny because, you know, if you have a horrible memory or you're not organized, you're going to have a problem because then, you know, the funny thing is when they implement all those plays, you go to lunch and then you go to a walkthrough and you better know everything that you just implemented by the time you get to the walkthrough or you're getting yelled at because your belt, you know, what we call a bust, you made a mistake on a play that, you know, you just put in and you better know how to, you know, where you're supposed to go. And then from that point, if you don't learn it by then, you better know about practice because we're going to be going full speed in pads. And if you screw it up, we're going to have to go back and do it again. And you don't want to have to do it again because then practice gets longer. And then when I was in Seattle, we would literally, after practice, watch practice after practice. Most teams come in the next day and watch practice. Uh, Holmgren liked to watch practice that night. And I can remember... This was probably my, I think it's my like my sixth year in the league. I can remember being in that practice, being being in that meeting, and literally falling asleep, and Homer sneaking in to the room, uh, and I, I can remember, and he would go off on the coach. So Mike Homer was not a micromanager of of players. He he would go off on the coaches and make them do their jobs. And I can literally remember him sneaking in, sitting next to me, and Larry Brooks being so hot. Cortez Kennedy threw something at me. Everybody started laughing, and I looked up, and Mike was like, oh, did you get enough rest <laughs> today? And I was like, no, man, it's, it's 5, 6 o'clock. I am sleepy. I'm sorry. I'm, please, I apologize. But it was hilarious because, you know, half of us were falling asleep, and here he is sitting right next to me. You know, and he did that a lot to a lot of a lot in a lot of the meeting rooms. And so, you know, he helped me be a professional. He was extremely organized and everyone from that Bill Wall Street was 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 very good. And, you know, you have different coaches that have different systems. But that one, you know, with, with Holmgren and, and, and Billick was a, a very strong tree and help you be prepared. Before I go to my next question for Sam, golf fans. If you want to find out more about golf, all aspects of it, check out my other podcast, The Golf Zone. It's The Golf Zone podcast. We interview everybody from celebrities to people in the business field to players, golf course designers. Check out The Golf Zone podcast located anywhere you can get podcasts are found. Sam, is there any analogy that is possible, maybe even a car accident or what it's like playing D-line in the NFL? You know, I got, thank God I haven't been in a bunch of car accidents, but, you know, it's a big collision. It's a big forceful collision because it's a lot of weights, a lot of people, and a lot of times you end up on the bottom of a pile. And so, you know, the good ones are able to stay on their feet and get around and make plays. And, it, I mean, it's it's a big collision, brother. It, it's a big collision. And for linebackers and, you know, a lot of those guys that play with a lot of space in between them, those are even bigger collisions at times. 
You end up with Baltimore. You win the Super Bowl 35, 34-7 over the Giants. What was it like playing with such a powerful defensive unit that, I mean, it just seemed like it was always in sync and never out of sync? We had, like I said, we had great mentors. We had great coaching. And, you know, we had people like, um, for me, my D-line coach, Rex Ryan and Mike Smith was his assistant who ended up, both of them ended up becoming head coaches. I mean, we had like, I think five or six head coaches on that staff. When you have that that level of preparation and Rex Ryan was, you know, uh, like me, he was a, uh, thought he knew everything. And, you know, he, he came from a, a coaching tree and Buddy Ryan, his father, and he'd been in it all his life. And I trusted him. And uh, it, it made it very comfortable when you play with people that you trust uh, and you play for people that you trust. Um, it made it easy to play. Um, there wasn't a, a bunch of, you know, forcing you to do anything, manipulation, like some of the places where I played. It wasn't the players were never jealous of me. Um, you know, it was a we were competitive. We we're hard on each other, but. They were never jealous. They didn't care about, you know, what kind of car you drove or kind of clothes you had. You know, we we were there. We lined up together. Um, So I thought. And so it was it was comfortable on the field. It was comfortable off the field. You didn't want to be the guy to let anybody down. And, you know, really wasn't pressure, but it was, hey, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be ready. And I'm going to make sure that I uphold my end of the bargain. And you wanted to do that. And that's why I I love Baltimore. You had a pick six versus Tom Brady for 37 yards. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the video. And I I want you to explain it because I felt for anybody who even attempted to get in your way, which they didn't. I mean, you just, you went straight ahead, but talk about that interception. I mean, it was funny. We had a blitz zone called and, and, uh, he was, you know, I mean, you know, it was the perfect play. He tried to get the ball out quick and he didn't see me coming across uh, the face of the center and he threw the ball right to me and I just got up and caught it. And because of the routes that everyone was running, they were gone. They were down the field and I was, you know, I was on my horse and I had a ton of people around me and you know, they couldn't catch me. They thought they were going to catch me. They were, I was not going to let those jokers catch me and I ended up scoring. We had a lot of, I had a great blocking and it was awesome. Yeah. It was great to watch. I'm going to put a link into it. You've owned separate arena teams. You had some one in Everett, Washington, another one in Cincinnati, Ohio. You're now the current owner, CEO of the Spokane Shock. Talk about how that's going for Indoor Football League there. Indoor Football League is, is a, a great group of people. We have uh, strong owners that are, are have come into uh, loving the sport from a lot of different industries. From you know, We have people that own grocery stores and grocery store chains, um, gas stations, uh, manufacturing, entertainment, real estate, and uh, they have a strong passion for football. Um, I got my teeth cut in Everett. Um, I didn't know very much about the business. I I learned a lot. I I literally was playing football. I wasn't there most of the time. I came in the off season, obviously, um, and I got my teeth cut in Everett. Uh, Learned a lot, Um, learned how, how to work with people, I was playing with the Buffalo Bills. I'll never forget it. And we were having some issues. And so I went to Russ Brandon, who was now the president and CEO of the Bills. And he uh, taught me how to sell, taught me, you know, how he picked and choose his people. 
Um, you know, I learned a lot from them and uh, I, I fell in love with the sport uh, or the, the game. Um, we played in a league called the, the National Indoor Football League. Uh, we had some issues in the league. You know, there were fledgling leagues, you know, trying to develop. We then moved to the Arena 2 Football League and I, I learned a lot. And I, I, I met a man named Jerry Kurz, who was a commissioner, and he, and he helped continue my education and taught me a lot. Um, it was something that, you know, I love the team. I couldn't run the team and play football at the same time. It's very difficult. And so I promised myself I'd get back into it. Then we get to Cincinnati. I started a team there, and, and um, I had a partner, King Griffey Jr., um, and a doctor, Tim Kremchek, there, and they were very, very good to work with. They love the game. I I, um, um, I had to leave Cincinnati and go to Denver. I was hurt, had surgery, and, you know, towards the end of my career, if I was still in Cincinnati, we'd still have that team. It was It was one of the best markets that you can be in. And the building was awesome. The people that ran the building were awesome. They were great people. Um, and I wish I and I wish I was still there. But it was one thing I've always promised myself that I would get back into the game. And uh, Spokane is one of the best sports markets in any sport in the country. And we're very thankful to be able to work with the building there. Um, the building is is excellent to work with. Um, we have great building managers and Matt Meyer. Uh, they make it very easy. And Spokane has always been, you know, a, a great sports town. They, you know, they sold out every game for four or five years. Uh, they're very welcoming. The fans are welcoming. The community is excellent. You know, I learned a lot about Spokane going to training camp when I was playing with the Seahawks. And I've always had a, a passion for Spokane. I, I love the town. I love the people. And they love the team. And so, I, you know, I was able to, lucky enough to be able to be a part of the IFL and the group of owners that we have in the IFL um, were very welcoming and gave us an opportunity. Plus, they have great teams um, with the Arizona Rattlers and, and, and head coach and president Kevin Guy, who has won several championships. Uh, the Sioux Falls Storm have won 11 championships out of, shoot, I think 15 years. They've been like 13 times out of the last 15 years. We're going to definitely fix that this year and end that streak for them. Um, Green Bay, the Green Bay Blizzards ran by a strong couple, the Trinklers uh, there in the manufacturing and some other businesses. And you have the Iowa Barnstormers who Kurt Warner played for. So we're building something special. They're building it. It's the right business model for it to last. They've been around for 12 years and we're very excited about our second, I guess, inaugural season this year. What is then the biggest hurdle of operating an indoor football team? Well, this year has been COVID. Yeah. I mean, who else, <laughs> who else has been, but you know, it's, it's support of this, you know, the sponsorship, the ticket sales, people following the team coming into the team. Um, there's a lot of different things, but I, I tell you what, when you, if you're going to start uh, an indoor football team, you have to pick the right market. The market has to want to have a team. The market has to want to support the team with ticket sales, with sponsorship, in a great lease in the building. The building has to treat you as a partner, which my building does. Uh, you know, Stephanie Kern, who is the CEO of the Public Facilities District, and what she, she works for the Public Facilities District and runs a building. Uh, she doesn't treat me as a tenant, she treats me as a partner. And because, they, because of that relationship, they are able to give us a lease that we can afford that makes money for everyone and gives us a chance to be able to, to play in, in a great building. Um, our fans support the team. 
Um, our, you know, the corporate partners in the business, local businesses want to be a part of the team, the TV stations, uh, radio stations. And so we, we're able to have uh, something on every front. And because of that, and because of the willingness of the of the community, we're able to be successful. And there are several places like that around the country, uh, like Arizona, like Iowa, that, that have that type of support, Green Bay. Um, you know, we have strong businesses in Bismarck. Uh, Bismarck Bucks are another strong group that we have. So we're, we're excited to be able to be a part of that. We want to pull our end of the bargain by putting on a good product for our fans. And, um, you know, this year we're looking forward to being able to play with fans. And we're excited about that. Sam, looking back at your entire life career, what are you most proud of? Um, looking back on my career... I am most proud of some of the relationships that I've built and the people, you know, and being able to be around like the late, great Cortez Kennedy, God rest his soul. I loved him to death. Uh, he helped make me what I was going forward. Other than the people that I've, you know, I've worked with um, coaches like uh, Rex Ryan. Um, I'm thankful for being a part of the Baltimore Ravens and in that relationship, even though, um, I was short lived. It was awesome. It was an awesome ride being able to play with people uh, like with passion, like London Fletcher, who was underappreciated. Um, you know, I met, you know, people like Troy Vincent, Ray Lewis, um, Takeo Spikes, some of the greats that, you know, you watch how they do their business. Rod Woodson, Charles Woodson. I mean, I, I play with great people, great places. Football has taken me um, to a lot of places uh, that I, haven't, um, I would have never gone to, um, I'm, I'm Seattle. In fact, I met my wife and my children are because of uh, me being drafted and I'm thankful for that. And so, um, you know, people like Lori Malloy who live here that, you know, uh, I was able to play with in Buffalo. I'm just thankful for you know, the ride that I've been given. I thank God for the many blessings bestowed upon me and my family. My father played, it's bringing a lot of joy to my family, my two sons play. My daughter is a basketball player and kind of got that from me playing football. I've never been able to spend time with them. And I was able to coach her and some of her teammates and help them get scholarships. And some of them move on and play be pros and be able to share my experiences with them. Listeners, you asked for it. I listened. There's now a donate page on the website before the lights pod.com. So all of you that have been asking me about taking donations, it is now available. Sam, thanks so much for being on the show, telling some stories and reliving your lifestyle. I appreciate it. Thanks, brother. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate the time. If you'd like to be part of the BTL crew, go to patreon.com slash before the lights and you can join there and get special one hour Zoom calls with me every single month with a former guest. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram at before the lights podcast show notes, go to before the lights pod.com and click on the episode links to get all the links to show notes. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin.